What a comforting knowledge to know who we are, know who he is, know that he is our father. So much more than just lyrics to a song, but it is my testimony. You're a good father. You've been better to me than I've been to myself. You're good to me when I don't deserve it. In spite of who I've been and in spite of what I've done, you've kept me. You're a good father. Amen. What a wonderful, wonderful thought. I do want to once again give honor to Pastor and Sister Kyle, the leadership here of this church and the youth leadership team for this great conference they've put together. So much work, so much work goes into something like this. And I want to commend you for being here this morning. I know that all of you stayed up much, 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 much later than I did last night, but you're still here. Amen. So I, I used to be able to do that, but uh, I know my limitations now. I'm not going to belabor the time. I'm going to get directly into what I feel uh, God would have me just to talk to you about here for a few minutes this morning. And I'm going to kind of continue on the same uh, general line of thinking uh, that I began yesterday in that I feel to talk still about some of the fundamentals, some of the root uh, foundational things that we must have a firm conviction about in our walk with God. I'll be reading from Acts chapter 7, verses 47 to 49. Acts chapter 7, verses 47 to 49. And as you find that, I do want to once again say how much of an honor it is to stand before you. It's something that I, I never take for granted, never take lightly when I get to stand before people. And I'll tell you even specifically with young people, every time I get the chance to speak at something like this, I, uh, I, I jump at that opportunity because I know that there are people here, uh, depending on where you are in your age, but there are people here for the first time in your life, you're making decisions that can affect the rest of your life. That up to this point, for some of you, most of your decision-making was done in a vacuum. So most of the real critical decisions were probably made for you by your parents. And you were not making decisions that could be life-altering, life-changing decisions. But you're at a point in your life now where you can make some decisions now that can affect the trajectory of the rest of your life. And it's at this point in this decision-making, the enemy would like to pollute your mind. The enemy would like to compromise your decision-making, put some things in your life, some seeds that can affect the rest of your life. And if I get a chance to talk to a young person at this critical stage in your life, it's my prayer that God will give me something to, to speak into your spirit that will become a part of the man that you're going to be, become a part of the lady that you're going to be, to affect the trajectory, to, to make a young person say, I'll be a person of destiny and purpose and apostolic dominion. I pray that that happens here this morning. Acts chapter 7, verses 47 to 49. But Solomon built him in house, howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Verse 49, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? For the next few minutes, I want to talk to you on the simple subject, a place of rest. And I want to approach this perhaps differently than we normally think about rest, because generally when we talk about a place of rest, we talk about us finding a place of rest in God. And there's nothing wrong with us finding our rest in God. But I pray this morning that some young person will walk out of here saying, I'm not just going to try to find a place of rest in God. 
but I'm going to provide a place of rest for God. I will become a walking, talking, living vessel. I will become a tabernacle. I will become a temple for the presence of God. I will become a place of rest for the Almighty. Let's bow our heads, God. We thank you for your anointing that we feel in this house. I ask you now, God, for these next few minutes, anoint my mind. Give me your words to speak to these young people. God, you know every situation that's represented here this morning. You know every desperate situation that's represented here this morning. You know every device, every snare of the enemy that's represented here this morning, God. Speak with the voice of clarity. Speak with the voice of power, God. Speak with the voice of destiny. Let us hear and receive the word of faith. We'll be careful to give your name the praise. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. I kind of alluded to the fact yesterday that it seems that every generation, every time we, we have problems in our culture, problems in our world, uh, we begin to think that perhaps it's unprecedented, that, that this is the first time we've seen social unrest like this, or this is the first time we've seen global conflict like this. We, we look at what's happening, and sometimes people begin to panic and begin to feel like things now are worse than they've ever been before. But it's amazing how you can look at cycles in history and see how how much history repeats itself and and as bad as some people feel like things are today you can look at the history of our nation and see that things have been here before and and in some ways things have been worse before but 1961 was particularly a troubling time in American history the country was in the middle of the, of the Vietnam War and then on top of that, the Soviet threat was such a, a major concern on people's minds. You, 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 hear, you hear about how they would, in school, they would do drills to, to prepare for a potential Soviet attack. It's something that in our day and time is almost just, you can't even think about elementary students doing things to anticipate perhaps what would happen if we ever were attacked by, uh, by the Soviet uh, Union. And, and, and Cuba was a major concern in 1961, uh, being seen as a threat, but being so close within striking distance of Florida, of our nation. It was seen as a great threat right at our borders. And Germany was a major concern. And in 1961, the Berlin Wall was just about to be constructed. It was a time of war, a time of conflict, a time of uneasiness, a time in our nation, a time of racial and social strife and, and generational strife. It was an almost unprecedented time, it would seem, in terms of being a troubling time in American history. And it was in this climate of social and geopolitical uh, uh, turmoil that a young president was sworn into office. And President Kennedy came into office in this environment. And in his inauguration speech, he, he made this statement to the nation. He said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And he recognized with what was happening in our world and in our nation, in our society, that the country was entering a time when people were going to have to examine themselves and perhaps have to grow in their thinking. He, he was trying to get people to see that there was a higher calling in being a citizen, that there, at being a citizen, that there was something greater than receiving, something greater than just being a consumer when you're a citizen. And I believe there's a message in this that resonates for the church today, that, that there is something that needs to rise up in us in the church. There's something that needs to grab a hold of us because the mentality that's being preached in the church in many churches nowadays is not this. It's, it's, a, it's a consumer mentality. It's an it's a inward
outward focus. It's a self-centered mentality. And we can see that even in matters of faith. Many times in church, when people talk about even faith, the measure of faith that they use is an inward focus measure. They say, I've got enough faith to believe that God can do something great for me. And that's the measure of faith that they use. But I believe God is trying to raise up a generation of young people that go beyond that measure of faith. God wants to raise up some young people that say, I'm thankful that God does great things for me, but I want to go to a greater level of faith that goes beyond saying, I've got enough faith to believe that God can do something great for me. And it says, I've got enough faith to believe that I can do something great for God. I've got enough faith to believe that I can make a difference. I've got enough faith to believe that as this world seems to be falling apart, that if God is looking for a Daniel, I can be that Daniel. If God is looking for an Esther, I can be that Esther. If God is looking for a young person who can make a difference, I will be what God has called me to be. The message in Christianity at large has come so far away from the ideals of the word of God. And Christianity at large, they've gone away from saying it's better to give than to receive. And now the message in so many churches is not that it's better to give than to receive, but the message now is give so you can receive. That receiving becomes the ultimate reason for giving. We've gotten away from the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. We've gotten away in many church circles about we, we, we don't want to talk about giving anything or sacrificing anything or providing anything to God or making anything available to God. And so, so many churches are producing people who are concerned only about what God and the church can do for them and not what they can do for God. Of what God can offer me, what I desire from God and not what God desires of me. But this is not the time to become shallow Christians. Once again, our world is facing troubling times. Once again, our nation is facing troubling times. And I believe God is raising up a generation that can arise to meet the challenges of our times. But the other problem with approaching your Christian walk uh, by just looking at what you can get from God and not what you can provide to God is that ultimately you're cheating yourself. Because it's in learning what God desires from me that I begin to learn about my own purpose and my own destiny. It's then that I begin to enter into a right relationship with God. It is then I can begin to become effective in the kingdom. It's then I can move from the milk and into the meat in my walk with God. What does God desire of me? For there is one thing that God has always desired from mankind. For some reason, God has always desired to rest with and enjoy his creation. He's always desired to commune with and rest with his creation. There's something unique about God's relationship with earth. And we can see right after creation that when God created the earth, that the first thing the Bible says God did was he rested. Not because he was tired. Hear me. God wasn't tired. He didn't rest because he needed to. But he rested because he wanted to. That there's something in the mind of God. That when he created this earth, he created mankind, he was moved to rest. He desires from day one, he has desired to rest with his creation. The Bible says that heaven is his throne. 
the earth is his footstool. I know there are many ways to interpret this, but, but when I look at this, I, I think that the heaven being his throne, a throne room is kind of a formal place, a place of majesty, a place of formality, a place of protocol. But an, a footstool denotes in my mind comfort, relaxation. You, don't, you won't find a footstool in a throne room. You won't find a king on a throne with his foot up on a footstool. It just seems that there's something intimate. There's something relaxing about a footstool. That is the relationship that God desires to have with his creation. We can see his original intent in the garden, how God communed with man in the cool of the evening. And we all know the story of how sin separated man from God, ended that intimate relationship, that communion of man with God. But even after the separation, it seems that God has always looked for a place where he can make his presence manifest here on earth. In Exodus 25, God told Moses to tell the children of Israel to make him a temple. He says in verse 9, according to all that I showed thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. In 1 Chronicles 28, 2, David says, as for me, I had in mine heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. David went on to say in Psalms 132, I would not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. We will go into his tabernacle. We will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. And I love the response of God. God looked at David and God said, this is my rest forever. Here will I dwell for I have desired it. I have desired it. I have heard the question asked many times, what do you buy a man who has everything? But I've got news for you. There is no man who has everything. There is no man who owns everything, but there is a God who has everything. There's a God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. There's a God with, with his mighty word. He spoke this world into existence. There's a God in him we, we live and move and have our being. And what can you give a God like that? What can a God like that possibly desire? Hear me, young person. He desires a place to dwell. He desires a place to rest. He desires a place to manifest himself. He desires a place for his glory to shine. I can't explain it. I don't know why God desires to live in me. I sometimes feel like David. David looked at the vast expanse of the heavens. David looked at the stars and the galaxies. And David said he considered the God that created it all. And David said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? I don't understand it, but God desires to rest in me. I don't understand it, but God desires to dwell in me. My God. I like that word dwell. One word that's often translated dwell is shakan. Shakan means to settle down. It's from this word that we derive the word Shekinah, which simply means dwelling or presence. And this word is used to describe the visible symbol of God's presence in the tabernacle. So in Exodus 40, 35, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting for the cloud rested, the Shekinah rested upon it, and the glory of God filled the tabernacle. 
glory is the form in which Jehovah God reveals himself. It's the sign of his presence, a manifestation of his presence. The word temple is defined as any place that the divine presence specifically resides in, a place dedicated to the presence of God. And so we first find his presence in the simple tabernacles that were constructed and set up by man and moved around with the people of God, these simple portable tabernacles that were constructed. And then these tabernacles would give way to the majestic temples that were made out of the finest materials that money could buy. But ultimately, even the finest of earthly temples had to give way to a spiritual temple, a temple not made by man's hand, but a temple designed by God and for God. Hear me, young person, when the time came for the greatest manifestation of God's revelation and God's presence to be made among mankind, he looked down and said, yes, there's been temples that cost a fortune to build. Yes, there's been temples that cost untold amount of money to build, built of the finest materials available. But God looked down and said, the greatest temple, the most valued temple is a clean heart and a contrite spirit. The most valued temple is is a person who's willing to open himself up, open herself up, and say flaws and all, even with my mistakes, take thy rest, O Jehovah, take thy rest. I lay myself on the altar. Arise, O God, and take thy rest. My God. Ah. And so God created a perfect temple for himself. In the Old Testament, he had to give exact measurements as to the width and the height and the architecture of the temple. He had to tell them how to construct the walls, what materials to use. Well, all of that was temporary because God knew that one day he would no longer dwell in temples made by man's hands, but one day he would dwell in a place created by himself and for himself. Jesus said you would have the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, oh my God, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He understands. He, he's, he's saying the reason that you glorify God in your body, the reason you prepare yourself is because you are a temple of the presence of the Almighty God. And those people in Corinth who Paul was writing to, they understood the significance of the temple. These were people, Jewish people, who were raised going to the temple, watching the priests go behind the veil, unable to touch the glory of God. For these people understood the temple, they had seen the temple. They were unable to touch the glory of God, unable to go beyond the veil. But they knew when Paul says, you're the temple of the Holy Ghost, they understood the awesome responsibility of being a temple. When Paul says, glorify yourself because you are the dwelling of the Most High, they understood nothing was more important than the presence of God. Nothing was more important than the preparation 
that someone would have to take if they were going to go into the presence of God. Hear me when I say that the day you became filled with the Holy Ghost, something happened to you. There was another dimension added to your being. Hear me, young person. There is no greater motivation to keep yourself clean than the fact that you're the temple of the Almighty God. There is no greater motivation to present yourself holy than the fact that God dwells and God arrests in you. There is no greater motivation to be the person that God wants me to be than the fact that I need to provide a place of arrest for the Spirit of God. That's the reason I need to guard my spirit. That's the reason I need to cleanse my mind. That's the reason I need to die daily. That's the reason I need to crucify my flesh. That's the reason I need to keep my attitude right. That's the reason I need to be careful where I go. Not because my pastor said it. Not because my youth pastor said it. Not because that's in the guidelines and the directions in my church. But because more than anything, I am a place of arrest for the almighty God. More than anything, I am a living and breathing temple of the Holy Ghost. My God. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 18. Bible says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God? My God, he's talking about you. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And after laying all this foundation, after having established that we are the temple, after having established that this is the place that God says I desire to dwell and rest, he goes on in verse 17 to say, wherefore, my God, having considered all of this, wherefore, Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What I'm saying here, simply, young person, is that we cannot afford to make the mistake of taking the Shekinah for granted. We cannot afford to make the mistake of taking his glory for granted, his presence for granted. We've got to be like David. David didn't even have the Holy Ghost the way you and I have the Holy Ghost. David was not filled with the manifestation of the living God the way that you and I are. But with, with even the limited access that David had, there was something in the heart of David where David begged, take not your spirit away from me. David, who had everything money could buy, all the success, David looked and David said, God, please don't take your spirit away from me. I can afford to live without many other things, but please don't take your spirit away from me. I want something to grab a hold of some young people in this house today. Many of you were born and raised in church. And if we're not careful, 
we can lose or really never even establish a real appreciation for what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. To have the presence of the Almighty dwelling with us, walking with us, living in us. But I want something to grab a hold of a young person where you say, in spite of everything that's happening in my life, in spite of what I might or might not accomplish in my life, in spite of all the good things I might do in my life, I want something on the inside of me to never leave me. I want a desire on the inside of me where I can be like David and say, God, please don't take your spirit away from me. I don't want to walk one day without your spirit. I want to provide a place of rest. I want to provide a place of habitation. I want to provide a place of dwelling for the Spirit of God. And if David could feel that way without being filled with the Holy Ghost, how much more so you and I now that there is no veil, now that there is no separation, now that there is no place I have to go to, now I don't have to wait for a certain time of year. I don't have to wait for a priest or a Levite or a prophet, but I can stir up the gift that dwells in me. God is in me. God is with me. Please don't take your spirit away. From me, my God, I believe something powerful could happen if you could just grasp the significance of having God dwell inside of you, resting in you, the honor of having the Spirit of God dwell in us, the historic significance of having the Spirit of God dwell in us. I believe it might help you. Hold your head up the way God desires you to hold your head up. I believe it might help you see yourself the way God desires you to see yourself. As a man, as a woman of purpose, as a man, as a woman of destiny, not because of who I am, not because of what I've done, but because greater is he that lives in me than he that is in the world. With the Holy Ghost living in me, he knows me. He knows my strengths. He knows my weaknesses. He knows my sinful acts. He knows my holy deeds. He knows me better than I know myself. Yet John says he regenerates me. First John says he anoints me. Micah says he empowers me. Romans says he sanctifies me. John 14 says he comforts me. Romans 14 says he gives me joy. 1 Corinthians says he gives me discernment. Galatians says he bears fruit. He gives gifts when he dwells in me and lives in me. And Revelation 21 ultimately lets us know what the end result will be for those who allow God to rest and dwell in them. The Bible says, behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said unto me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the earth, the thirsty I will give from the fountain of water of life without payment. He who conquers shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And so with the emphasis today, it's not on a geographical place. It's not on a building. 
It's not on a temple. It's not on a tabernacle. Where then does the emphasis lie today? Listen to 1 Peter 2. It says, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it ye may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by man but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verses 9 and 10, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. If you and I, from youngest to oldest in here, are the living stones who are being built into God's house. A people who belong exclusively to God. A people who exist to demonstrate the excellencies of God because he can call a person out of darkness and then to his marvelous light. Because of God's mercy that he's given us, we who at one time could not even be God's people are now the people of God. I said yesterday, I'll say it again, I believe God wants to do unprecedented and mighty things with this generation. I believe the fact that you're here this morning speaks volumes to the fact that you want to be a part of what God desires to do. But the way that you're going to be what God wants you to be is that you are going to have to grab a hold of this idea and say, I will become a temple. I will become a place where God can dwell. I will become a place where the Shekinah glory of God can rest and be made visible. That this is what God has desired from the beginning of mankind. That God has desired, for whatever reason, God has desired to dwell and rest with his creation. God has desired to commune with his creation. And now we live on the other side of Pentecost. We live on this side of the revelation of the plan of God, the restoration of God, the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And you and I can now drink freely of the Spirit of God, and you and I can become the tabernacles, the temples, the ultimate manifestation 
of the presence of the Almighty God. And don't lose sight of the awesome wonder of being a temple that God can dwell in. I know what it's like living in this day and time. There are a lot of distractions. There are a lot of things that will pull you so many different directions. But hear me, there's nothing more important than being a tabernacle of the Almighty God. There's nothing more important than being a place dedicated to the presence of the Almighty God. I'll say it again. That's the reason I need to be holy. That's the reason. I need to be right. That's the reason I need to be clean. That's the reason I need to be set apart. That's the reason I need to be dedicated to the life that I live. That's the reason I need to be dedicated to God, not because I'm following rules, not because I'm being obedient to mankind, but because more than anything, I want to provide a place of rest for the Almighty God. More than anything, I appreciate the fact that the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament has desired to dwell in my life in spite of my flaws, in spite of my failures, in spite of my weaknesses, in spite of my frailties. God has desired to dwell in me. And so I say this morning, here Jehovah, I avail myself. I'll make myself available. Take now thy rest. Arise, O God, and take thy rest. Occupy my mind. Occupy my spirit. Occupy my heart today. Occupy my heart. Come on, God is calling somebody. Come on, reach out to God right now, young person. Reach out to God. Reach out to God. Reach out to God. God, I want to be a vessel. God, I want to be a vessel. I want to be a vessel. I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve it. I know I don't deserve to have the spirit of the almighty God dwelling in me. But if you desire to dwell in me, I say, God, here I am. Take thy rest. If you desire to fill my life, I say, God, here I am. Take thy rest. If you desire to make yourself manifest through my life, I say, God, here I am. Take thy rest. I want to be a temple. I want to be a tabernacle. I want to be a vessel for the almighty God. Come on, reach out to God all over this building. Something is happening. Something is happening. Arise, oh God. Arise, oh God, and take thy rest. Fill my mind like I've never been filled before. Fill my thoughts like I've never been filled before. Hey, yes, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. Come on, don't stop short. Come on, don't stop short. Don't stop short. There's nothing more important than being a place of rest for the Almighty God. There's nothing more important than being a tabernacle, than being a temple. Come on, young person. I know it's difficult. Come on, young person. I know there are distractions. Come on, young person. I know there are things that you have to fight through and things that you have to lay aside. But lay aside those weights right now. Lay aside those burdens right now. Lay aside those distractions right now and say, God. God, feel me like I've never been filled before. Ah, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God, yes, God. Come on, step out right now. Find a place where it's just you and God. These altars are open. Find a place right now and say, God, feel my mind like I've never been filled before. Feel my spirit like I've never been filled before.
Yes, God. Yes, God. I want to be holy, God. I want to be holy, God. I want to be holy. I want to be set apart. I want to be separated now, God, for your glory. Yes, God. 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 Jesus. Yeah. 